Well, let's continue on with our study of church history. Got a lot to cover tonight. And uh, um, hopefully I'll get through it all. That's, uh, you should, tonight you should leave going, what? <laughs> all right, let's take a look. After the fall of Rome, the Roman Empire was falling apart bit by bit after each barbarian invasion. It wasn't coming apart at the seams, as it were, but uh, Roman society is gone. It's been invaded by other people. So barbarians living alongside Romans and from A.D. 410 onward. The Frankish Merovingians. How many of you ever heard of the Merovingian dynasty? Okay, good. Uh, you will tonight. Yeah, that's right. It's not one that you, you read a lot about. If I read about it in high school, I was asleep that day, I think. But uh, Carolingians, they followed on behind them. So the Frankish, that they're all Franks, or modern-day French. Uh, so we'll see. The, the Merovingians, they, they become chief among the barbarians. The feudal system would then emerge. You ever heard of the feudal system? Castles and knights, what have you. Along the way, churches were developing very different perspectives and practices. So we're, when thinking about this, it's not just a history class about the world, but it's where the church fits into all that. So the church, what is happening to the church along the way? When the papacy, or as the papacy, rises in the West, which is Italy, um, it brings together uh, old barbarian kingdoms, the Angles, Franks, Visigoths, the Lombards, all of which are reigned over by the Pope in the West. In the east, you've got Istanbul or Constantinople, Syria, Jerusalem, Egypt. All of this is going to be ruled over by the emperor in the eastern part of the empire, the Greek Orthodox. They spoke Greek, and in the west, they spoke and used Latin. So you've got a division. It's supposed to be one empire, but it's divided by language, rulers, peoples, barbarians, Romans in the east. When the Franks become dominant, it, comes, it happens under a king of the Merovingian dynasty named Clovis. Uh, the Franks conquered much of the former Roman uh, Western Empire, I should say. And Clovis of the Merovingian dynasty, he was chief of the Franks. He accepted the Nicene Creed and supported the Roman church in AD 496. He uh, was not a Christian, but his wife was. And he prayed, he was hemmed in on every side by his enemies, and was about to, there's no way he could win this battle. And so he prayed to Jesus. Jesus answered him, and he gave his allegiance to Christ, supposedly became a Christian and was baptized. He reigned until uh, a man named Charles Martel. Charles Martel is not a last name, it's, uh, it's a, it means the hammer, Charles the hammer, uh, in 715, 741. So it's not a, it's that Clovis is back in the, in the fifth century. And Charles Martel rises, uh, you know, a couple hundred years later. Uh, and he will originate the Carolingians, Carolingians, if you want, I don't know if you want to make that G, J, or G. I go back and forth. So uh, don't call me on it. The Merovingian dynasty, uh, ruling family of the Franks, which would become the French. This is a map of France and an extension of modern France. Uh, from the ruling family from 481 until 741. They first appear as the kings of the Franks in the Roman army of the northern Gaul. By 509, they had united all the Franks and northern Gallo-Romans under their rule. Remember, this was a barbarian tribe. They've come together. They're the most organized and intelligent. And so everyone comes under their rule. Not the Pope. They're the, the muscle. The Pope is the, the religion. Uh, they will give way to the Carolingian dynasty. See, there I always said Gian dynasty. So. I know it, I know it. In the meanwhile, the world is being taken by Islam. 
Um, Muhammad lived in Mecca. That's a trading post in Arabia. In 610, Muhammad claimed that an angel had entrusted him with the words from Allah, whom he called the one true God. Allah was just one of the pantheon of gods at that time, the moon god. And he chose Allah to be the main god. These Muslims, followers of Muhammad, became known as Muslims. comes from the Arabic Islam, which means submission. The words Muhammad claimed to have received from the angel Gabriel uh, were eventually recorded in the Quran, which is uh, Arabic for recitation. It's interesting because it is believed that uh, he was um, illiterate. So it's hard for someone who was uh, illiterate to write a book. I won't go into all that. Not yet, anyway. After Muhammad's death, Muslims conquered Arabia, northern Africa, the Holy Land, and Spain. In 732, Charles Martel, that one we talked about earlier, stopped their advance at the Battle of Tours in Italy. Um, And Muslims believe that Muhammad, at least this is unrelated, but Muslims believe that Muhammad journeyed into the heavens from the Dome of the Rock. That's right there in Jerusalem, middle of Jerusalem. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, um, we we, we were all under that little area right there a couple months ago. And uh, my daughter was there. And what were y'all doing? Y'all screaming and yelling about something? Julie was in the midst of it, and we got corrected by people. Y'all hush. Um, you can't do that. You can't be loud out here. Oh, sorry. Uh, but anyway, you, this is the Dome of the Rock. This is not anything Christian. It is uh, quite blasphemous sitting on the site of the old Holy of Holies. But this is where they believe that uh, Muhammad ascended into heaven. So they built a, a church is built there, the Dome of the Rock. It's beautiful. Um, Islam and iconoclasm. Iconoclasm is image breaking the muslims rejected all idols then and now and even pointed out that many christians seem to worship icons of jesus do you think that when people bow down before icons various things do you do you think that does that look like worship to you it does to me i mean i think you're bowing down before any of it huh? depends which ones i mean uh, you see It is one thing to honor, to venerate, another thing to bow down and worship it, but, and, and people make that distinction, but sure does look like worship to me. Uh, you know, it's like people say, you know, I honor my, my spouse, or I honor my children, but a lot of times it's just downright worship of the children, or the job, I honor my, my uh, whatever, whatever I do, but in fact, really everything points to you maybe um, worshiping it. You know, how, how many of you, if you looked at your checkbook ledger, and uh, where would you find your worship in that? I mean, the, our church is Amazon. I mean, it's just the first church of Amazon. That's just the way it is. That's where all of our money goes every day, all the time. Uh, but the Muslims saw Christians bowing down to these objects, and they, they, that bothered them. In 725, a volcano rocked the city of Constantinople. The eastern emperor wondered if this was punishment for icon worship that had been introduced and, and allowed to exist in the east, conflict quickly erupted between the iconoduels, icon kissers, and icon, iconoclasts, the icon smashers. Uh, iconoclasts uh, claimed that iconoduels were idolizing their icons. That's kind of the way some of us do, do today. You iconoduels, yeah, you're an iconoclast. Name calling. 787, the Second Council of Nicaea allowed reverence of icons but forbade the worship thereof. Okay, so once again, you've got, you can allow, we can have icons, but how do you know when you're worshiping one? When you're kissing one? 
I mean, who kisses an icon? Many people do. Bow down, speak to the icon. It's just a piece of something. Um, so it was allowed, but you can't worship it. So now you get the same thing. When am I just honoring it and when am I worshiping it? So we go back a bit. Two major cities after the fall of Rome. Constantinople was the emperor and a political entity, and Rome ruled over by a religious pope, religious entity. These two places, these two people, the pope and the emperor, were divided by distance and language, Latin and Greek, and there were many hard feelings that existed between them that rose up between them through the years. Rome had no political sword. The barbarian tribes did not create empires. They just became the new Rome. So they weren't fighting these barbarians. They were pleading with them. Leo was pleading with them, don't come in and and pillage too much. Just do this, but don't destroy everything. You guys just come in, take everything, and let us live among you. You live among us. And they did. And the barbarian tribes did just that. They didn't have any any real military to stop them. Um, So they became the new Rome, these barbarian tribes. The dream of an empire and Augustine's city of God persisted At least in this dream, we will one day again become the city of God, uh, but it persisted until A.D. 800 for a particular reason. With the rise of the Holy Roman Empire, and I get a load of this map, Uh, you can see the boot of Italy there, and right there in the middle, um, you've got, at least on the far left, you've got the Kingdom of France, and down low, what would become Spain. This is modern Germany, a little bit of France, but this is the Holy Roman Empire. This is what becomes the Holy Roman Empire. So the the Roman Empire was at one time ruled in the city of Rome, and it stretched out all around the Mediterranean, northern uh, over into Palestine and northern um, Africa and over into to uh, all the way as far west as England and all around. So that is now gone. It's divided. It's gone east. It's kind of weak in what was used to be the Roman Empire with Rome as its capital, and now it moves over in this Holy Roman Empire. And who's the... Who's the king over this part? It's going to be Charlemagne. (laughs) When the Franks became dominant among the barbarians, the Merovingian family ruled. This would be Clovis was their first king, a Christian, from 481 to 511. He came to know Christ. Up until, up to A.D. 741, so you've got this Merovingian family, they're the kings. They're ruling the roost, or at least on paper. During that time, up to 741, the mayors of the palace are the ones that actually managed the household of the Merovingian kings. By A.D. 650, they, these mayors of the palace, they were the power behind the throne, eclipsing the Merovingians in influence. You might look at it today like the, uh, uh, say, England. England is, uh, you know, you've got this, this royal monarch uh, who, who rules, yet they have no real power. The power belongs more to the state. And so it's something like that. So the Merovingians are reigning, but the ones that are managing the palace uh, are, are other men. And they become prominent, these mayors of the palace. Charles Martel was one of those mayors. Uh, he was one of those powerful mayors, and he drove the Muslims out of Spain at the Battle of Tours in A.D. 732. His son, Pepin III, also called the Short, it's not because he was short, that's because he was just the, the younger. It's just to say he's the younger because there's a Pepin one and two. He drove, this is the son of Charles Martel, he drove the Lombards out of Italy. He donated land to the papacy, and this will bring in the Carolingian dynasty. The thing that Pepin didn't like was he knew that we have power. Pepin said the mayors of the palace have the power. The Merovingians are just nothing. He said, I, but Pepin not only wanted the power, he wanted the title. 
And who can give him that title of king? The Pope. So in 740, 714, 714 to 768, as Pepin ruled, Charles Martel's son became mayor of the palace and over all Francia in 751. He was every bit as powerful as his father, Charles Martel. The Pope called on Pepin for military aid against the Lombards because the Lombards came into Italy to, uh, to Rome. Hey, Pepin, come help me out. He does. Pepin sent armies to deliver the Pope from the Lombards. The Pope declared Pepin king of the Franks in place of the Merovingian king. And so now the mayors of the palace are now the ruling entity. They're the ones of the power anyway. This is the beginning of what, the, what is called the divine right kingship in the West. And that means basically that the monarchs are subject to no one on earth, answering only to God who appointed them, and they're appointed by the Pope. And then you're going to have this war between the king and the Pope. Who's got the power? Later on at the end of our, our time tonight, we'll see that the, the Pope has a great way of frightening people, saying, I am God's right hand. I'm in the line of Peter, and you can do whatever you want, but if I say you're not getting into heaven, you ain't getting into heaven. Still yeah, not much has changed, has it? Now, if Pepin has now become the king, and he's the king in what will be called this Holy Roman Empire, there's still an emperor in the east. Uh, what do you think is going to pop up? I mean, the emperor in the east was begun by Constantine. Well, at this time, a forgery called the Donation of Constantine was written, which asserted that Constantine had given power of the Roman Empire to the papacy. Right about the time that Pepin is appointed king, some forged document pops up that says, oh yeah, before, we're, here's a document that Constantine wrote that said when he left for the East, the Pope can appoint anyone he wants. How convenient. The donation of Constantine. So Charles Martel had a son named Pepin, the third, the short, and Pepin has a son named Charles who will become the great Charles, Charlemagne. Um, here he is on his horse. Charles Martel was mayor of the palace, died in 741. Pepin the Short was king, died in 768. Charlemagne will become emperor. So he will take what his father gave to him and what the Pope has agreed to and rule a new empire. Charles became king of the Franks in 768. He strongly supported the Roman Catholic Church. He was a supporter of the, of the Pope. King Charles later became known as Charlemagne, which is Latin for Charles the Great. In 799, the power-hungry Italian nobles accused Pope Leo of embezzlement. Now, Pio, uh, Pope Pio. Why not? Pope Leo. Pope Leo III, um, when you are going to accuse a pope of embezzlement, you, that's a, you might think that's a large accusation. Leo III fled to, to King Charles on December 28th, in the year 800, Charles acquitted the Pope on all charges. Don't mess with this boy. So he's saying, don't mess with him or you'll mess with me. So two days later, on Christmas Day, A.D. 800, Pope Leo III dubbed Charles the Holy Roman Emperor in continuity with the rulers of ancient Rome. And what is birthed now is a new part of the Roman Empire. He was neither holy nor was he Roman. And some have said, and that wasn't an empire either. Holy Roman Emperor. I think it was an empire. I mean, it's an imperial government. Thus, the Western church created their own emperor. So they just made their own. We're no longer, we don't need the guy in the east. We don't need the emperor. It's not helping us anyway. Different culture. Everything's different over there. We need help. The Pope was helped by Charlemagne. Charlemagne came in. Now he's the king, this new Holy Roman Emperor. 
Charlemagne had the goal of uniting all Germanic peoples, both Franks and barbarians. And barbarians is just, the, it's, a, it's a broad term for all of those tribes that had made their way in. And he wanted to make one great empire under Christianity. Very extraordinary man, Charlemagne. The study of Charlemagne is one of the most interesting studies you'll ever embark upon. I haven't read enough. I can't really read enough. Uh, there's just too much there. He was an amazing man. One of the top five people in the history of the world is Charles the Great. He conquered the Muslims, the Slavs, the Bavarians, and the Lombards. At his coronation in A.D. 800, Pope Leo proclaimed Charles most pious, Augustus by God, saying, Simon Peter has recovered his sword. In Charlemagne, the church and the state were unified and prepared to establish God's kingdom on earth. The battleground time period is called the Middle Age, sometimes referred to as the Dark Ages. I've learned that historians do not like that, that phrase, the Dark Ages. Uh, for various reasons. So we'll just go with the Middle Ages, medieval times. Don't want to make anybody mad. You know me. I never want to make anybody mad. That's me. I'm all about peace, Ernest. Charlemagne conquered the Lombards, Saxons, Frisians, Avars. I had to look up, see who these people are, where their, their countries are. Um, northeast, southwest, he's conquering that area, which is what becomes, once again, that, that area of the, the modern world, Holy Roman Empire. Charlemagne's victories created a new empire in the West. The Carolingians, he is now, he's not a Merovingian. He, Carolingians from Charles, uh, this Frankish noble family named after him. You can see he's, uh, all of that brown underneath is where, the, where Islam has advanced at this point. Uh, he is ruling uh, what's left of the Roman Empire in those uh, colorful areas. The changes that he made, he introduced scholarship to his kingdom, encouraging the use of Latin as one of language, of scholarship for the whole empire, a grammarian as well. Um, you've got uh, he, this English scholarship, uh, uh, bringing Latin to the day, or making sure everyone knew it, could read it. And all of these people groups in this Holy Roman Empire, he imported and supported scholars from all over Europe to be, his, to be in his court and improve Frankish schools. And some of you have heard of Alcuin, who was his most notable right-hand man, to teach the world what it needed to learn. Dark Ages, you're, not, you're, not talk, you're talking about a, a time where people, I say Dark Ages, Middle Ages, Dark Ages, it's where people go, not, not everyone's literate. Not, not everyone, I mean, you're out living in, in, in a land where it's just, it's not civilized. Nothing like what we know today. Nothing. I mean, wouldn't it be great one time that, that, to just be able to explain to somebody in that, in that day, you know, tell them, hey, I'm from the future. And tell them, you know, I was, one of my favorite comedians, is Nate, his name is Nate Bargetti. And I, I can actually tell you that because he doesn't curse. And he said, you know, he, he said the thing about being, but he said, I would love to go back in time and tell him. He said, you know, I could tell everybody, you know, back in the, you go back to the 1920s. And said, so, you know, while they're doing the tap, tap, tap. He said, you know, in the, in the modern world, we have phones. He goes, what's that? You know, it's just. You just walk around with your hand. You walk, what, what, what's that? He said, I wouldn't even be able to tell him. I don't even know what that is. He said, I wouldn't know how to make it. If I lived in the 1920s, I wouldn't know how to make a phone. He said, you know, so I tell him, you know, well, you get, the, you know, you get your, your reception from satellites. What's that? I don't know, just something with metal up in the sky. <laughs> so I mean, even if we could go back in time, I mean, could we actually tell people? Could you teach anybody how to make a match? Some of you might be able to. <laughs> I, I couldn't. This is a time where people don't read they don't study, they don't go to libraries per se, and Charlemagne is going to advance this world, and he does, and he makes an amazing effort to do so. Brings in people from all over the empire to teach. Charlemagne collected important manuscripts from all over Europe. 
He sponsored the development of cursive, cursive script that made Latin legible. And he introduced standards in punctuation and word separation. Here's a, this is Merovingian script altogether. Kind of nice penmanship, isn't it? Um, he introduces the Carolingian script where there are spaces between the letters and there's punctuation. So he's, yes, if you grammarians, you love that, right? You engineers, I can always tell. There's some slides I put up and engineers are just like this. And, and, and the others are like Becky, who are, and they're going, yes. Becky just did that. She went, yes. There's others, I'll put things up on the, on the screen, and it's just, it's all numbers, kind of in a pyramid, whatever, and, the, and the, you can see that the engineers are out there doing this. The grammarian's like this. <laughs> You're one or the other, right? Charlemagne also spread the use of our common AD, or in the year of our Lord, that's Anno Domini, um, in the year of our Lord dating system. Take a look at this. So the timeline, his, his day, Charlemagne's day, is going to go backwards, around AD 800, going back various time frames. Two, Jesus was born this many years earlier than Charlemagne's day. He's going back, so it's going to date this time period. The year, uh, technically, the year AD 1. You know, there's no year AD 0. You know that? So you, either, you go 1 BC to AD 1. That's just one year between, between that. Uh, it took me three months to, to tell this girl that one time when we were uh, at, at Cypress Bible Church. She was one of the, uh, the secretaries, a good friend of mine. And, she, and I was trying to explain to her, you know, in, in this. And she said, no, wait a minute. Help me understand that again. Help me ask, okay, 1 BC. You're in the year before Christ is born. Year before. You don't know it's a year, but you're in that year. You don't know you're in that year until he's born. When he's born, now you're in the year of our Lord one. But what happened to zero? Zero doesn't exist. There is no zero. This is a very intelligent woman. And for a while, I thought she was just putting me on, but she said, this is just too much for me. So, so hopefully all of you understand. There, was, there were dates, but it was, it was dated to certain like in the third year after the earthquake. In the third year after the really bad hailstorm that broke all of our, our windshields, sort, that sort of thing. Um, but no, there's no real dating system. There, other cultures may have had one, and but they don't line up with each one. So Charlemagne is going to bring together a, um, and there's already one existed around 500. There was a, a monk that put together around 530, AD, AD 530. But he's going to put this AD dating system to, uh, to much greater use. Yeah, it is. It's quite amazing. Trouble is that they were wrong in their calculation of the number of years uh, that had passed since Jesus' birth. We know that he, was not, he, was born, he wasn't born in the first century. He was born in the first century. Uh, he wasn't born in the year AD 1. How do we know that? Well, as recent, really the, the, uh, the scribe that put it together around AD 525, with what he had was amazing what he did. He was off by four to six years. Uh, and, and now we go back and we date. That's why when Jesus was born four years before he was born. You see, Jesus was born around 4 BC. You're going, how can that happen? Four years before Christ. Is that confusing to anyone? You've read that before, but you didn't want to look at it and go, hey, what does that mean? You know, it's just one of those embarrassing things you don't want to ask. Um, we know that the, the thing is that we know when, uh, what was happening when Herod the Great died. When Herod the Great died, we know what was happening. The earthquake or whatever happened, everything is dated to that point. And when you put that together now, based upon what Charlemagne's dating system was, he's four years off. Four to six years off. And why do we say four to six years? Because Herod the Great wanted to kill babies up to two years of age. And he died the year that Jesus was born. So, 
But he puts together uh, this timeline and uh, begins this dating method. We know this because, uh, as I said, Herod the, day, Herod the Great died around 4 to 2 B.C., really 6 to 4 B.C. Now, when he dies, his sons, unfortunately, the, the, the Carolingians uh, up to Charlemagne were great. You've got Charles Martel. Usually a great and powerful leader doesn't have a very great and powerful son. Charles Martel did in Pepin. Pepin had a great son, an even greater son, Charlemagne. Problem is, Charlemagne didn't have powerful sons like him, his grandfather, or their great-grandfather. Um, and so after him comes the rise of feudalism. And feudalism is really pictured by this uh, uh, pyramid. You've got a king. Basically, you've got someone who owns land or who has power. And that king hires, brings in people that will become the nobility. They're going to... Uh, He's going to give them land, and they're going to work under him. They're going to be the, the vassal, and he's going to be their overlord. And they're going to bring in military protection, knights. That's where the, the concept of knights comes from, and castles. And so the, the lower level are going to be your military men, and then lower than that are going to be your peasants and serfs. The serfs, and these are the ones that are given a piece of land to work. They... Uh, they're farmers, they bring food in, they give that food to the king, they eat themselves, but they will always remain poor. They will never rise above that. And so it's this pyramid of, uh, of the way of living. And that's the way you, you've got a large section of land, a big castle to protect. Everyone lives on this, and that goes around. That's just kind of the way Europe was at that time. I mean, it, it's even around, even today, I mean, Cheryl and I watched a couple years ago, uh, Downton Abbey. Uh, I mean, you, you see it. You see it pictured there, right? You know that the uh, the family is living on land owned by the king, and, and they're they're the nobility. This is where the nobility comes from. They've got the people underneath them. They're taking care of them, and then as it goes on down, and so it's really. In fact, it's, it's thought that it didn't go out of existence until 1789 in the the French Revolution. So anyway, this is what springs up. When Charlemagne is not in control and taking care of everybody, this is what has to happen. So feudalism did. Charlemagne died. His kingdom was divided. Disorder ruled. Feudalism from fief or land arose as a means of order. Churches, bishops, monasteries, they paid homage to feudal lords who controlled their land. So if churches are part of this, they're part of that little, little pyramid scheme. They're all schemes, right? You get a pyramid, you got a scheme. Um, You've got these people paying, what's the church doing? Well, what's the ch who's the church trying to please? Whoever's land they're living on, whatever, whatever needs to be said, needs to be done, the church is getting pretty watered down through this way. The Lord's uh, possessed the authority to bestow spiritual position to laymen, which they did. So if you have power to bestow a spiritual position on somebody that has no business leading people spiritually, you've got a corruption in the church. Simony, which is you pay for your um, for your your office and nepotism, uh, hiring within the family, became very rampant in feudalism. By the ninth century, the state absolutely controlled the church. That's not good. The church should be separate from the state. And that's not because I read that somewhere in the, in the readings of, uh, of Thomas Jefferson or because I live in the United States or because I'm, I grew up Baptist or anything. The church and the state, if the, if the state controls the church, that can never be good. Should the church control the state? Well, if the church controls the state, then every sin you commit is worthy of death. Is that a good thing? Well, it might be. That doesn't make Christians. They should be distinct. The church should have great influence over the state without ruling over the state, at least in my, I was going to say humble opinion, but I'm just going to say in my opinion. Again, feudalism is the dominant social system in medieval Europe 
where society was based in the feudal pyramid, where the king was the top, the nobles, knights, and vassals below him. In the feudal system, the nobility held lands from the crown in exchange for military service. And vassals, that's the people who were working for the Lord, were in turn tenants of the nobles, while the peasants, uh, the serfs, were obliged to live on their Lord's land and give him homage, labor, and a share of the produce, nationally in exchange for military protection. Uh, This is the the levels of society that you get in feudalism. Uh, For many years, Christians in the eastern and western regions viewed themselves as members of one church. But the disagreements are beginning to grow. And when people begin to disagree more and more, what's going to happen? It's going to be a split. Do you see, make sure you note the picture there. It's a split church. Fits together. You know, I'm not very creative, but frankly, I thought it was pretty ingenious of me. Between the 9th and 13th centuries, uh, the church split, Roman Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox. And what was done then continues today. The East, the Eastern Orthodox Church splits to the West. The Eastern resentment of clerical celibacy. They did not like being told that they could not marry. Uh, they did not like the limitation of the right of the confirmation of the bishop, where the bishop could confirm rights. They, they didn't like answering to the Pope. Uh, this is the East. Uh, the use of unleavened bread in the Eucharist. I mean, do you see some of this? is kind of, kind of silly. We want to be able to eat the Eucharist and have bread with some leaven in it. I mean, th- that's what people argue about today. Now, ours obviously is that crummy little wafer. It's all just a, it's a remembrance. But if you're going to sit down to a meal and you're going to be served saltines, you're going, wait a minute, can we just have some good bread? And that's what some of them wanted. The others are going, no, no, it's representative of, of having no sin. So we'll have unleavened bread they didn't like that and the great schism of 1054 schism always say schism uh, the fourth crusade and the filioque controversy so these are the reasons uh, that this happened how many of you are familiar with the filioque controversy well tonight you are going to be enlightened go talk to your friends tomorrow they will be impressed (laughs) it's another it sounds great but it's really just it comes down to not silliness but I don't know why people get so uptight about this stuff. The churches in Western Europe added the word filioque, which means from the sun, to the Nicene Creed in the AD 500s. They added this. Eastern Christians recited the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. The Western Christians in Rome added the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Is this heresy? Is this horrible heresy? I think it's changed because the Nicene Creed does, does it, if it does anything, it says that the Father and the Son are of the same substance. And the Western Christians added this filioque. So is filioque biblical? Jesus said in John 15, 26, when the Helper comes, he's speaking of the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. Now you can see the passage says that the Spirit proceeds from the Father. Jesus says, I will send him. The Western Christian said, looks like he's coming from both. Apostle Paul said, you are not in flesh, but in spirit. Capital spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So he's talking about the Spirit of God, and he equates it with the Spirit of Christ. Okay? And then Paul says to the Galatians, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. What is the spirit? Is the, is the, is the Holy Spirit? 
Yes, called the Spirit of Christ into our hearts. Which is it? Spirit of God, Holy Spirit, or the Spirit of Christ? The answer is yes. <laughs> so, but you and I can go, I mean, I pop up these three passages today. If I, in, in teaching this class tonight, I didn't have this, this, uh, this slide originally from my, the, the last time I taught through church history. I thought, I'm just going to pop that up. I go to my Bible software, copy a couple things, bam, 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 boom. Put a little gloss on it from a PowerPoint designer, and, and there you have it. Now, do you think they could do this in the 7th, 8th century? Do you think they just pick up, well, give me my Bible, let's take a look. They didn't do this. They didn't have this. It was available to churches, but it certainly wasn't in a bound form with calfskin leather. Uh, That's just not what people had. We have that today. Don't take that for granted. All the many Bibles you have in your home, the different translations that you might have, that's an incredible privilege. You think people came to sit and listen in in a classroom like this in in the year 800, the year 1000, with this kind of air conditioner turned down to 70 degrees? Did they do this in the 1950s? Some of you who were around in the 50s? There's no air conditioning back then, was there? That's right. You fanned the whole time, right? You had windows in one side and windows on the other side so wind could blow through. You went home and you drank lemonade on the front porch. And Isn't that what you did? I don't know. I wasn't there. but <laughs> Look at how we live, folks. Look at what we're looking at. Even with all the advancement, we're still making the same petty art. Or, or how many of you, you're as comfortable as you can be. We live in a world where we walk around with a phone in our hands. We couldn't even explain this to people 50 years ago. Or I can't explain it to them today. What am I talking about? We drive cars. We go home to a, a, a house full of food. Full of food. You don't have to worry about what you're going to eat. Most of us don't have to worry about what we're going to eat for a month. We've got freezers. And we're still complaining. If these people in this day could sit in our church, in feudalistic society, could, could sit and, and live in a home like we live, the worst of the homes that, that people live in today, whatever the worst of that would be a mansion to them back then. Oh my. Yes, I have wondered that. So the filio controversy, uh, Phocius, the bishop of Constantinople in the east, he spoke out against the added phrase, because it was when those in the west who were saying it proceeds also from the sun. He spoke out against this added phrase in 867. Photius declared the phrase to be heretical and excommunicated Pope Nicholas, bishop of Rome. That's pretty extreme. This would lead to, in 1054... It's 150 years from that point. Uh, Bishop Humbert of Rome placed a notice of excommunication on the Lord's Supper table of the Church of Holy Wisdom in Constantinople. He came there, came there in peace. The Pope was actually somewhat peaceful, but the bishop in Constantinople made Humbert mad. This is just one of the, another silly stories. In other words, so Humbert comes from, from Rome, and we're going to talk about this with the emperor in the east. Emperor in the east, nice enough guy. At the time, I wish I could, it eludes me what his name was. And, uh, uh, but it's, it's this other guy named Seria, Sarah Raelius or something of that nature. I'm not pronouncing it quite right. He makes Humbert mad. So Humbert says, all right, I'm excommunicating and I'm going back to Rome. And he does. Uh, and the churches of the East and the West were now split. And they were split until Pope John VI in 1965. They met in Jerusalem in 64 and in 65 they said, look, let's just get over this. That's how long it took. I mean, almost a thousand years, 900 years later. I mean, come on. 
I say that because, come on, how many people are you at odds with today that it's just such a stupid, silly disagreement? Just get over it, right? We all just need to get over ourselves. So the Crusades come about. This happened in the, in the 11th century. Um, you've got, uh, in 1095, Pope Urban II called for a crusade to take Jerusalem from the Turks and Arabs. He has this huge speech. And he, I didn't put it up here because it was too much take too much time, huge speech to motivate everyone. If you're a Christian, realize that what's the Holy Land where our Lord was, was born and where he was crucified and buried has been taken over by these pagan Muslims. Go get them. If you go get them, I promise you heaven. Well, if you're illiterate, you don't know any better, okay. What else am I going to do? I don't have a job. I'll go kill people. Who are in the a Holy Land. The Pope promised anyone who participated in the crusade the equivalent of penance. It's all done. It's taken care of. He promised it. He's the Pope. Pope can do this stuff, at least in his own mind. So the first crusade uh, conquered Jerusalem, slaughtering Jews and Muslims. Jews were part of the problem. They killed Jesus in the minds of the crusaders. And July 15, 1099. The second crusade, uh, about 50 years later, Failed to take Edessa, actually 150 years later. Failed to take Edessa from the Muslims. Afterward, Jerusalem fell into Muslim hands again. The third crusade also failed to take Jerusalem. It's the fourth crusade that was so horrible. They were all horrible. Uh, The crusaders never reached the Holy Land. They became entangled in a series of financial and political issues that brought the crusaders to Constantinople, not to Jerusalem. The crusaders are leaving from the west and they go into their own people's capital in Constantinople. On Good Friday of all times, the year 1204, the Western Crusaders broke through the walls of Constantinople and for three days, the Crusaders killed, tortured, and raped Eastern Christians in the name of Christ in 1204. Now this brings the division between East and West into great divide. The relationships between the Eastern and Western Christians never recovered from those three days. But in 2004, Pope John Paul II declared, quote, How can we not share, even at a distance of eight centuries, the pain and disgust? The fact that the Crusaders were Latin Christians fills Catholics with deep regret. Uh, And that's why Muslims today, Muslims hate Christians, hate us, because of the Crusades. That's the main issue to hate Christians, is what, what the Crusades did. Go in and kill these people in the name of Christ? Reform begins, 300 monasteries declared freedom from homage Uh, the end of simony, and a board of men to elect the Pope rather than feudal lords. The College of Cardinals was established to do this very thing, 1059. In 1073, Hildebrand. Now, if your name was Hildebrand, would you be happy to change it to Gregory? (laughs) Hildebrand in 1073. It's a powerful man. He became Pope Gregory VII. He claimed infallibility. And exerted great authority. This is, now we're going to clean things up. The Pope's going to run everything. He's going to, he's this godly man, if only. He prohibited prohibited lay investiture, which is the authority to bestow spiritual position as layman. Layman. So he prohibited this. Instead of the Pope having the authority to do this, or or the state to, uh, he prohibits that authority um, to give to any old layman what they want any rule in the church. And so all of this brings us once again to um, how the Roman Catholic Church has evolved through the centuries. As I put in here each week, uh, an evolution of that. The Pope, now with his own authority, going back to Hildebrand, Gregory the Seventh, 
a clash then ensued between Pope Gregory VII and Henry IV, um, this German Holy Roman Emperor. And essentially what happens is that Gregory, Henry IV is not going to give Gregory um, the, uh, oh, what's the word for it? He's not going to give him the satisfaction of, of kowtowing to him. And so Gregory VII says, all right, I will withdraw all of my support and all military power that I can give as Pope to your land in England. And you will be subservient to me. Henry VI uh, IV says, no, that's not going to happen. So they had this back and forth until finally the Pope comes up with the interdiction. He accused Henry of simony and the Pope summoned him. Henry then called a council to remove the Pope. That's Henry recalling a council. Gregory then called an interdiction. This is going to be the Pope's most powerful weapon. It's an ecclesiastical censure in excluding a person or district from partaking of the sacraments. In other words, he's saying, Gregory is telling Henry IV, I'm not going to allow anyone in your kingdom to partake of the Lord's Supper. If you can't partake of the Lord's Supper in Rome with Catholicism, you can't have your sins forgiven. He's going to make sure no one does that. That's going to take, turn everyone's, um, everyone's loyalty from Henry to the Pope. German nobles pressured Henry to repent. And 72 hours later, after he made his way over the Alps to Hildebrand's winter home in January, for 72 hours he stood out there barefoot while Hildebrand watched him cower. Same thing, same, the thing that he would never do. 72 hours of groveling and asking for the Pope's forgiveness, Hildebrand gave it to him. <laughs> now, if that's not just the abuse of power. But to think you have the power to forgive. Henry was afraid he was going to lose all of his power and he wasn't quite sure he was going to go to heaven as a result. The Pope then became supreme with this sword of interdiction. So if you have done this interdiction, you're the Pope, you're going, hmm, that worked. That was powerful. I brought this powerful king to his knees. The papacy's zenith. In 1077, from 1077 to the 13th century, popes used Gregory VII's ideas to exert control leading an attempt at the city of God, whereby they would do what uh, Augustine's book, uh, City of God, said, we will have God's city on earth. The papacy then became the most powerful, coveted office in Europe. Wouldn't, wouldn't you want that power? I mean, you want to rule the world? Become the pope. By interdiction and excommunication, they determined, these popes determined whether we went to heaven or hell. And with that kind of power, this is, when you talk about the evolution of the Roman Catholic Church, that, that power of the Pope and people not knowing any better, yes, that, that's where it came from. Yes, it is so sad. But remember, it's Hildebrand, Gregory VII, who made it such. The emperors were all shadows of Charlemagne, all of them answering to the Pope. The papacy's corruption... The transubstantiation, the idea of transubstantiation, whereby the, the Lord's Supper became the, the, the body and blood of Jesus within the body. You partake of the bread, the priest drinks the, the wine, uh, and as the priest drinks the wine, he's drinking the blood of Jesus, you're taking the body of Jesus. That's what the Mass is. The Mass, if you're not Roman Catholic and you think that a Mass is just the same as a, a worship service in a Baptist church, think again. A ma- good Catholics go to Mass every single day. I call them good because they at least know they're sinners. If you know you're a sinner, you know you need forgiveness. So go partake of the Mass. The body of Jesus is killed again inside of you, and you are now forgiven. As soon as you leave, you're a sinner again, right? 
You're still a sinner while you're taking it. But this is what transubstantiation is. Um, the papacy's corruption introduced the seven sacraments called sacramentalism. Uh, sacerdotalism, which is coming to the priest for teaching, mediation, communion, etc. Uh, so if you go to anyone and you think that you need to, even if you, if you came to me, Lance, will you, come, will you pray for me? If you ask me to pray for you, I will pray for you. But I'm, I'm probably not going to pray anything specific you ask me to pray for. Just want you to know that. Pray that God do this, that he do that, that I do here, and this happens at that. I'm not going to do that. I never do that. I don't do that for me. I will pray God's will in your life, which I don't know. Now, that's not me patting myself on the back. That's just me telling you I'll do that. But I, I am no more powerful in praying than Bill is, than Sharon is, than Charlie is. Uh, anyone who views their pastor as somehow more close to God is a sacerdotalist. Not a whole lot different than Roman Catholicism. I am happy to pray for you as my friend and as a shepherd in the, among the sheep, but I am not more powerful in my prayers. James 5.16 says, The prayer of a righteous man, and by extension, woman, is a powerful thing. A righteous man. Well, what about Matthew 18, where it says, Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I'm with them. That's not about prayer at all. Don't ever think you need two or three people to twist God's arm. That passage is about church discipline and church discipline alone. Don't ever think you need to be in a, a circle with two or three people. Agree together and tell God, we've agreed, give it to me. The prayer of a righteous man or woman is a powerful thing. You don't need to go to a mediator or a pastor, but that doesn't mean you can't go to people that love you and pray for you. I will always pray for you. I already do. Um, someone asked me, said, how do you have time to pray for the whole church? Easy. I don't list a bunch of specifics for each one. I have certain Bible passages. I pray for your knowledge and your love for Christ to grow exponentially. Today, I prayed for all of you up to my Wednesday group, which will by extension be Thursday and Friday, that you will hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because in the Beatitude, Matthew 5, 5, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For what? They shall be filled. So I prayed for that for you. That, that, that's how you pray for people. God, your will be done. I've had people say, pray that we get in this hospital, we get this room, we get this doctor, and we all get well. And, and that's not bad. It's okay to pray that if you want to. I mean, that's what you want. So don't lie to God and say, okay, Lord, I'm going to try to be extra righteous and not tell you what I really want. He already knows what you're thinking. Tell him what you're thinking, but nevertheless, Lord, not my will but yours. Isn't that how Jesus prayed? So transubstantiation, sacramentalism, sacerdotalism, purgatory enters into the, to the corruption. Indulgences, that's giving money for, for grace. Uh, indulgence, part of indulgences was um, the idea that there were some saints on the planet that had lived so righteously that they had done more than they needed to do. They had done. So you've got this extra amount of good works. I'm not making this up that's in this kind of spiritual bank that you can go pay your indulgence and get their good works and have it foisted on your life. People believe this stuff. You know, I don't, on, on purgatory, if they believe that Jesus forgave their sins, what was purgatory for? No, they don't believe necessarily that Jesus forgave their sins. But, uh, these, they need Jesus to continually forgive their sins. That's, that's why in the Roman Catholic Church, if you commit suicide, it's a mortal sin. You go straight to hell. Because you didn't have time to ask for forgiveness after that. We had a gentleman here at the church that committed suicide back in, uh, I don't know, it was about 09. I'd counseled him for almost 10 years. Uh, it was 
devastating. And uh, his family was Catholic. He had come to know Christ here, and he had a great testimony. And I was, I just, it was awesome to read his testimony at his funeral. But uh, his family was Catholic, and they came in, and I said, "Look, I know John, and and John is with Jesus." I said, and that's the way I'm going to preach it. I said, I know in Roman Catholicism, you, you believe that, that he's in hell. She said, oh, no, no. Our father said that, uh, that he was given a pass. And I thought, is that right? How does that work? Oh, well, you know, that was a little bit of money. Well, we'll go a long way. But that's an indulgence. Indulgence is giving money to be able to tap into some old works that someone else did or to... Lessen your time in purgatory. The Via Moderna over the Via Antiqua, that's the ability to serve God better for more. Uh, the way it was done in the past, the way it's done in the present versus the way it's done in the present. Um, papal infallibility, the, ones, the one holy, the una sanctum, and the veneration of Mary. This is all part of the papacy's corruption that uh, we see a, a good bit of in the modern day. You've got the worship of the saints, in the early times, Christians remember the life and testimony of martyrs on the anniversary of their deaths. In the days of the Roman Empire, this changed into a notion that we can pray to martyrs for help. We looked at that in the past. John Chrysostom said, They, meaning the martyrs, have great boldness, not merely during their life, yes, much more after their death. For now they bear the marks of martyrdom. And when they show these, they can persuade the king, the capital king, to do anything. Even Ambrose said the martyrs must be invoked. They who have washed away their sins by their own blood may pray for our sins. It makes, yeah, by their own, by their, by their death is what he's saying. He's not, yeah, by their own death. Their death in the name of Christ. Now, it's not completely outlandish, I don't think. It's just not biblical. It's not the way Jesus said to do it. He said, there is one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. The worship of the saints in 1343, Pope Clement VI officially sanctioned the view that Jesus and his saints had left a treasury of merit and that other members of the church could draw on the remission of temporal punishment for their sins. A person obtains all a share in these merits by an indulgence, which was granted by the Pope, usually in exchange for some good work or a donation of money. There it is, and there he is. Relics, physical objects belonging to saints, even parts of their bodies could confer merit to a person. We looked at this. With, this is Gregory I. Uh, Pope Gregory I had a chain that he believed held the Apostle Paul. Some part of his body, some ash. He used to send filings of it to friends. To one such friend who was suffering from poor eyesight, he said, let them be continually applied to your eyes. For many miracles have been wrought by this same gift. And, and he was an intelligent guy. The worship of Mary. Mary is at the head of the saints, of all the saints, because she birthed Jesus. And the first instance of a formal prayer to her dates back to A.D. 379. Augustine, in writing about the fact that all people inherit their sin from their parents, says this, We must accept the Holy Virgin Mary, concerning whom I wish to raise no question when it touches the subject of sins, out of honor to the Lord. For from Him we know uh, what abundance of grace for overcoming sin in every particular was conferred upon her, who had the merit to conceive and bear Him who undoubtedly had no sin. Now, he does not say that Mary was without sin, but he's real close to it there, isn't he? He was close enough to it where someone had to come along and say, look, let's just tip it over the edge. And today it's become Mariolatry. Mary's Immaculate Conception. Uh, and note, when you see the church, or a church called the Church of the Immaculate Conception, it has nothing to do with Jesus' birth. Uh, Protestants are not all clear on that. The Church of the Immaculate Conception is about Mary's conception. 
that she was conceived without sin. Mary's immaculate conception, or so-called, was proclaimed in 1854. That's how long it took to become doctrine by Pius IX, who declared Mary free from original sin. Wasn't that nice of him to declare her free from original sin? Well, they can do anything. That's right, they can. And strange that Mary in her Magnificat in Luke chapter 1 calls herself one in need of a Savior. Talks about God, her Savior. You don't need a Savior if you're without sin. The assumption of Mary, that is that she ascended into heaven without dying, uh, became dogma in 1950. This is how long this came to be. You'd think, well, if they've always believed this, it dates back to her, her day. It doesn't. 1854 and 1950. Purgatory. Second Maccabees in the Apocrypha, 12, 44 to 45. Speaking of Judas Maccabeus making an offering on behalf of men who had died. <clears throat> it says this. For if he had not hoped that they who were slain would rise again, it would have been unnecessary to pray for the dead. Whereupon he made a reconciliation for the dead that they might be delivered from sin. That and that alone is where the Roman Catholic Church gets their idea of purgatory. Now, they found other Bible verses through the years that hint at it, but this is their passage, and the Apocrypha being in their Bible becomes their scripture. It's developed by Gregory I, ratified at the Council of Leon in 1274, and at the Council of Florence in 1439. Purgatory. Notice how late that comes in. Purgatory, as you've heard me say, runs the whole system. It runs the whole Roman Catholic, Catholic system. Uh, if you've got a purgatory and you've got friends, family there, uh, and you are paying money, you are giving indulgences so that you can get your loved ones out and lessen your own time there. Uh, because no one except people like Mary go sh die and go straight to heaven. And she didn't even die, they think. Uh, but there are some good people that, that died and went straight to heaven. But the rest of us, we've got to spend some time in purgatory. How can we get them out? Pay money. This runs the system. Papal infallibility. Gregory VII, that's Hildebrand, declared the Pope and the Church to be infallible in 1075. Official doctrine says that he is infallible when he speaks ex cathedra, which means from the chair. Not from the cathedral, but it means from the chair. Not a lot of popes that have done that, by the way. Only two pronouncements have been agreed upon as being spoken ex cathedra, and that's the 1870 papal infallibility, ex cathedra, and then the 1950 Assumption of Mary. And of course, you know that they go with Bible plus tradition. What does the Bible say? Okay, that's good. If it fits their way of thinking, great. But if it doesn't, we need some tradition that helps us. The Council of Trent, which was the, the counter-reformation in the 1560s, Council of Trent concluded that the Roman Catholic Church derived its doctrines from both the Bible and tradition, venerating both of these sources with equal affection and reverence. It affirmed that the Bible is the inspired word of God that tradition is not, but tradition is a source of faith equal to the Bible and that it is a true source and that it imposes the assent of faith. The Bible is superior in dignity, but tradition is superior in completeness. We draw from both. We're Bible church. If the Bible doesn't say it, we don't believe it. or We don't have grounds for believing. We can believe something and hold to the opinion, but we know what's true from the Bible, not from tradition. In general, Roman Catholics are expected to accept the teaching authority of the Roman Catholic Church because it is a safe guide, even if it is not perfectly free from error, and because in critical areas of faith and morals it will not fail them. There is no other guide to whom they can turn, and they are not personally responsible if they submit to the church, even when a particular case of the position of the church 
could change. So if the church changes its position and you were with it in the past, it's not your fault, don't worry, that's the church's, you were just doing what you were told. Well, the question is, is where are these people in reality? I am no one's judge, and it is not my place to say where these people are. It is my place to say that salvation is through faith in Christ alone. My assumption is that if these were God's chosen people, he would have brought them to himself, as he has on many occasions. Are they sincerely deluded? Yes. They nice, good, deluded people? Yes. There will be many nice, good, deluded people in the eternal fires of hell. I hope it's not your family. It is not my place to say. But it's a tough one, isn't it? Anyone quote to me Hosea 4, 6? My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. For lack of knowledge. So in the early period, it was all by revelation. The revelation of God in His Scripture. In the early Middle Ages, it was revelation plus tradition. Later Middle Age, revelation plus tradition, and then plus reason, that crept in. In the Renaissance, it was revelation and reason. The Enlightenment, it was just reason. <laughs> Harvest Bible Church, just the Bible, right? At least best we can. Finally, by the 12th century, power had replaced piety, tradition over truth, syncretism, which is man working with God to save him, over monergism, which is God working through the Holy Spirit to save, pronouncements over Scripture. The Crusades clearly revealed the problems with the church, those seven military movements to reclaim Jerusalem from Islam. And yet the rumblings of reform and protest grew steadily throughout the 14th and 15th centuries. We're not quite at the Reformation, but the rumblings of it are certainly there. Let me pray for us. Lord, for all of us, I pray that uh, we would hunger and thirst for righteousness. That if we don't hunger and thirst for it, create a hunger and thirst for it. Your promise is that we will be filled. I pray for that for all of us. In the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. Thank you.